0: first off thank you to everyone who took the time and the trouble to attend our event today we're so glad you did i'm just going to start things off the way we usually do welcome to all about agatha the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime dame agatha christie i'm kemper donovan i'm katherine brobeck And we have officially been doing this podcast for five years now, but we have never done a live episode before. We are thrilled that today is the day we finally get to do that. It is September 13th, 2021. We are speaking in front of a live audience at the International Agatha Christie Festival in England, in Agatha Christie's hometown of Torquay. There is just one little catch, isn't there, Catherine?
1: Uh, Kemper, you know, up until about... Two weeks ago, we were going to be in uh, Devon with all of you, and uh, it just turns out that this was another year that we would not make the Spanish barn because of, you know, travel restrictions, but, uh, you know, the funniest thing about this is that we're in our houses in Los Angeles in exactly the places where we actually record the (laughs) podcast.
0: So
1: you're actually seeing directly what it looks like when we do this every week. The only difference here is that, uh, I have a very bright box light in front of me so that you can see me. And, um, It's seven (laughs) a.m., so we usually record at night.
0: Yeah, this is this really probably is a much more authentic experience of the podcast than if we had been uh, sitting in front of you. Even though, of course, we wish we were sitting in front of you. I'd also say, since it is seven a.m. here, we usually record at night, and um, there will be no crickets accompanying this episode, as there so often are on Um, both our ends. So that's good.
1: You know what? I end up having in the morning, appropriately, murder of crows in my backyard. (laughs) And so I had to shut all the windows so that you would not just hear the cawing.
0: (laughs) Well, let's just get right into this. You know, As we say in our intro to every episode, and as we said just now, the purpose of our podcast is to read and to rank every single mystery novel written by Agatha Christie, because we both love Agatha Christie. We know that you love Agatha Christie. That's why you're there. Uh, And for five years, we've been reading and talking and reading and talking and reading and talking, going in chronological order of publication. And so far, we've covered 58 of Christie's 66 full-length mysteries, everything from The Mysterious Affair at Styles all the way through to Endless Night. That is the most recent uh, mystery that we covered.
1: And, uh, you know, there's all the short stories. So it's well over 100. And that's in addition to, you know, a number of Christie scholars and um, contemporary mystery authors, all of whom, of course, share our regard for Dame Agatha. So, you know, we are um, very sad to not be with you guys there, but, um, you know, we have spent so long doing this that we feel like we know a lot of you just as our listeners because we correspond with many of you. And, uh, you know, we're still delighted to do this project every week.
0: So we figured for this live episode, it would make sense to go back to the start of it all and revisit Christy's first book, mysterious affair at styles. And, you know, we were actually going to talk about styles at last year's festival for the hundred, the hundred year anniversary of its publication. Um, But that live version was canceled. So we shelved our talk and you might think that we missed our centenary opportunity. However... Uh, i will Temper, note this
1: is temper's favorite fun fact people
0: <laughs> while styles was published in the u.s first actually in late 1920 it actually wasn't published in the uk till early 1921. so we haven't missed out on our centenary talk here in 2021 uh i'm i'm very happy to say and you know i think my my first revelation on rereading re-rereading the mysterious affair of styles for this episode Was how uh, much I did not remember it, given that we are, you know, I'm now covering something that we already covered for the podcast. And this is actually something that I'm cribbing from our friend Sophie Hanna, who writes the official Poirot continuation novel. She'll be speaking later on in the festival. Um, She said in one of our many interviews with her that Christie wrote so much that if you read all of her books in order and then you start over again, enough time will have passed that you can approach them with a fresh perspective. And it kind of makes the canon this never-ending loop, which might sound like a nightmare to some people, but for all of us here in this room, so to speak, uh, that is obviously a dream come true. And I was just struck by that, by how much time and distance I had from the book that I was able to approach it in this fresh way.
1: It shouldn't be that surprising, Kemper, because we've been doing this project having read all of the books as kids. I mean, that's how this started. I think all of you who've listened to this before know this, but, you know, I think for a lot of people, ourselves obviously included, Christie was basically our introduction to adult fiction. So, you know, I read my mother's Christie's, including obviously Styles, um, as some of the first adult books when I was probably like nine years old. So, you know, coming back to them fresh, including coming back to styles, even five years later, I think it just continues to be a rewarding experience. Don't you think, Kemper?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, I was really struck by how fully formed the puzzle mystery is in this very first attempt Of Christie's, you know, it's all very Athena springing out of Zeus's head, fully formed. She didn't really have to take any baby steps when it came to the plotting of her mysteries. You know, it's true. I think that the mechanisms of the puzzle mystery in styles are a little more exposed than they would come to be even a few a few years later. But I just think it's so remarkable that the mechanisms are all there. I mean, we've got we've got it all. We've got a full and isolated cast of characters. The the scene. a lo- yeah, a locked room or a seeming locked room, you know, just the murder of a person who every single person within that cast of characters had a reason to want to kill, which we know Christy found, uh, you know, a difficult thing to pull off.
1: We have wigs. <laughs>
0: we have wigs. We we, we have actors, uh, you know, and just a number of ingenious clues. I was so impressed Upon revisiting um, as to some of these clues, I mean, they are just of such a high caliber. The significance of lighting a fire in the middle of July, once Poirot explains that, well, the only reason anyone would light a fire in July is because they wanted to burn something. It's so obvious it has that kind of you know, obviousness when you're on the other side of the clue of, of those very best Christie clues, where you just want to slap yourself in the forehead and say, how did I not think of that? But most people don't, you know, and I, I certainly didn't. Um, also, I this has to be one of my favorite clues within all of the canon, but we need to pay attention to the spacing uh, within a handwritten letter, that is pasted into the novel itself. There are a couple of characters that are a little closer together than most of the rest of the um, of the words within this letter, and that is uh, a key to solving the mystery. And it's just so devious. And she she did it in the very first book.
1: And I'd also note, as we've noted to some of you, um, we have the spills clue in styles, and so one of the things that she does so incredibly well in the book, right, is she setting up Poirot in his first novel. And what you see is this absolute, almost, we call it now OCD, attention to detail. So he's rearranging, right, on the top of the fireplace, the spills, and it does not seem necessarily important. It seems like a character tick, of course what should we know by now? You guys all read as much Christie as we do. So it's a clue and it's a really good one. And, um, you know, it took us a little bit of time, I think, and feedback from some listeners to realize what the paper was, but it goes entirely to lighting a fire in summer, right? Because that's what they're for. It's kindling. And I think that that's one of the places where our listeners have truly proved just incredibly important. I mean, the corollary to this, um, of course, is the notorious hundreds and thousands, which um, you guys maybe don't know this, but we made a mistake very early on. In not knowing what hundreds and thousands were, because we're Americans, we call them sprinkles. And to this day, I would say it's once a week, (laughs) somebody who finds this podcast and you just very kindly explains to us what hundreds and thousands are and believe me we will never forget what hundreds and thousands are <laughs> at this point but the spills clue goes back to the genius i think of what's going on in styles and how fully formed it is because it's combining a character trait with an incredibly important
0: clue yeah i mean it's funny the spills thing you know we we also listened in preparation for this episode to our very first podcast episode, or I should say two episodes because we had to break it up into two parts. And um, aside from the audio issues, which, you know, we've been plagued by for the duration of the podcast up until the present day, you know, as you can kind of see, uh, we often get a little echoey. I think sometimes we tend to sound like we are recording from a Gothic cathedral surrounded by a chorus of crickets. Um, That is definitely the case. For the mysterious affair at Styles, um, I think we've gotten a bit better. We could still, I think, um, do a little bit better than than we have. You know, this is all very DIY, but um, yeah, we didn't. We just didn't really know what spills were, and we thought that they were merely decorative. I think we were referencing Etsy a lot in the episode, and we've gotten a, a handful. Which is a
1: thing, by the way. That is like <laughs> that is where we were directly getting it from. Like our like. That is our experience of what spills are.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've definitely gotten a handful of comments from people. I still stand by the fact that I think, you know, to recap slightly in case you don't remember this uh, plot point within Styles, but, you know, our murderer, I won't say who it is, but our murderer in this book has to get rid of an incriminating letter. So what he or she does uh, is to rip it up into three pieces and roll those pieces up and making them into spills that they then put into this vase on a mantelpiece. And Poirot eventually realizes by way of his OCD tendencies, because he's always fussing with everything, that the vase must have been tampered with because he straightens it once and then he has to straighten it again. And he realizes, well, the only reason I would have straightened it a second time is um, is if someone had moved it. I still tend to think if anyone was going to straighten something that was already straight, it would be Poirot. He does flick invisible dust off of his sleeve, but that's okay. And then, of course, he retrieves this letter from the vase and it completely incriminates the murderer. Um, But it it goes a long way, I think, to making that murderous plot of this person a little bit more believable, because if the paper was meant to be burned, that was the, the purpose of it, then okay, I guess I could understand why you might do that. A fire also, he, you know, the, the, this person couldn't have just lit a fire at the time, because again, it's the middle of July. And this person was also under constant surveillance. So that would be why slipping it into a pocket or coming back later is something that they never did. So I think that we were a little harsh on the spills of it all in The Mysterious Affair at Styles the first time I th- around.
1: I think that what we were... T- Really thinking was somebody who had to hire had to hide something incriminating. Spent all of their time crafting instead, (laughs) and and, you know, I I will still say I'll do credit to Agatha that it does seem like it would be easier to like put it in a shoe or something than in a public location. But still, I think that that's why we mention it in terms of the character traits of Poirot, because she's doing a lot of work with one thing. And I mean, for somebody to do that in their first novel is incredible.
0: Yeah. And and going off that, actually, I mean, I was really struck by the way that the relationships among the characters, all of the characters really form the backbone of the mystery. And that's just a through line in all of Christie. You can, you know, you I think you can really see the origins of Even a masterpiece like Five Little Pigs, our top ranked novel, in the way that she's weaving just this like web of deceit around not one, but two married couples. We have the Inglethorpes and the Cavendishes. We have a pair of young lovers, Loris and Cynthia. We even have a love triangle that I would defy you know, even the most astute and cynical of readers to see before it's revealed. But these are the kinds of things that Christie would just come back to over and over again, these sorts of entanglements. And she just refashioned them almost endlessly and fooled her readers every single time. And I just think that's remarkable.
1: I feel like I'm being set up here to just change this over into a presentation about five little pigs, <laughs> so like that you're you're walking in dangerous territory here, Kemper <laughs> 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 um no, I think that that's um I think you're totally right. I mean the relationship elements are critical to almost all of the novels and Here, you know, because you're seeing it at play from so many angles, I think that she figured out something essential about human nature in some ways, which is we do kind of often live and die by our relationships, right? Essentially, in this case, literally die. But, you know, I think that part of what is fascinating here is that even as a young writer, she fundamentally understood how human behavior works. And you see it time and time again. And that sort of relationship dynamic and also the dynamic of people playing off of one another is real life. So whenever anybody sort of criticizes her for inventions or that they're unlikely or that they're cozy, we hate that word personally they're not cozy, they're real. And you see her doing it here, right? You see her essentially formulating her idea of human nature and how she's going to play that out over the coming many decades. So I think it's really important to read this book or reread it or reread it again as a framework of how she sees society and how she's reflecting that within a mystery.
0: I totally agree with that. Listening to, re-listening to our first episode, we were also grappling from the get-go, like from the very, very, very start of covering Christie um, with the question of whether detective fiction is escapist at its core or whether it involves some sort of deeper engagement. And in that very first episode, we talked about how literary critics like Edmund Wilson, for example. Bunny. Bunny, yes, Bunny Wilson. uh, How they criticize the mystery novel as merely providing order and solace for people who had been through a horrible world war and who were on the precipice of another. It was obviously a a time of great turmoil. Um, And we made the point in our first episode, and I still stick by it, that, you know, this escapism, I think, is not something to be dismissed. It's something to be championed. Um, especially when it's viewed through uh, a feminist lens, this is something that we got into right on that very first episode. You know, it's no coincidence that we've got the queens of crime, not just Agatha Christie, but Nio Marsh and Dorothy Sayers and Marjorie Allingham and so many others. P.D. James, Ruth Rendell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, through to this day. You know, mysteries are written by women; they're they're very much read by women, and I think that. Um, These books give women and other marginalized people much needed agency. And we've come back to that point over and over again on the podcast. But what I found myself thinking as I was re-listening to that episode, and then thinking about what I was going to talk about today, you know, what have we learned over these five years is that I find myself rejecting the notion of a dichotomy altogether. I think that Detective fiction can do both. (laughs) It can have it all, right? Like it can provide an escape for those who desperately need it. And that's important, but it can also provide textual engagement in the same way that, you know, quote unquote, literary fiction does. It it really can do both. And I think there's no reason that we have to choose.
1: I mean, I would say that going back to Edmund Wilson, I made the bunny joke because he famously had a literary relationship with Vladimir Nabokov, right? And so Nabokov called him Bunny. Nabokov generally is ranked pretty highly in the literary canon of the 20th century. But if you think about what he's writing, what is he writing? He's writing mysteries, Pale Fire, Lolita even. They're mysteries, and so to sort of I think going back to that same point, Kemper in that first episode and talking about what Christy does so well, and then having this sort of dismissive nature sometimes, both in academia and within conversations about the literary canon, trying to uh, corner her into like a genre writer because she, third best selling writer of all time after god and shakespeare right (laughs) (laughs) so um you know to try to corner that popularity i mean into something that is not of the highest regard is a mistake and i think that that same point that because the readers of mystery have often been marginalized people, women, etc. cetera, you know, that shapes actually the canon understanding of it. And I thought um, when we were going back to it, looking at this, even from a structural element, the, the term puzzle mystery, right, is often dismissive. But isn't that just structure? Yeah. I mean... Am I wrong Kemper?
0: No, I'm reminded actually of a sister podcast of ours, which I shout out often and I'll do it here as well. She done it, Caroline Crampton's lovely, lovely podcast, which we've been on and hopefully we're going to have her on ours very soon. She has a very
1: lovely map that if you folks have not seen it, it's Agatha Christie's England. It just came out. It's Beautiful.
0: It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Um, yes, uh, everyone should should go out and, and get that. But she had an episode where she was talking about the first mystery. What is the first mystery? And this is something that people love to talk about. And you know, there the the obvious answers are: oh, is it Poe? You know, is it Wilkie Collins? Is it Sherlock Holmes? You know, and Arthur Conan Doyle at least popularizing it. And the conclusion she came to was that the first mystery is basically. Ancient Greek plays (laughs) because mystery is a story and I'm way oversimplifying what she was saying, but these genre conventions, you know, these categorizations that we make are arbitrary and they're useful when they're being used so that we can buy books so that we know okay I like a certain kind of book I like I like mysteries so show me what mysteries you have in this bookstore we obviously need categories we need genre definitions but it becomes less useful when people use it to minimize or marginalize or belittle the literature itself and I think you know what's nice now that we've read as much Christie as as we have is that I, you know, it's very easy for me to think of examples as to, okay, well, if you're saying that Christie is doing what other people are doing, and that you can have textual engagement with a Christie text, then prove it. Okay. Uh, you know, let's take some of her post-World War II output. A Murder is Announced, Taken at the Flood, Crooked House. Sure, those those are all fabulously entertaining escapist examples of detective fiction. They're also profound meditations on the social change wrought by the war, or at least accelerated by the war. Look at Endless Night, which we just covered. Gripping psychological thriller, very typical of the period in which it was written. Very much enjoyed it. Also, it allowed Christy to comment on, you know, what she perceived as the dangers of a new generation of youth who insisted on instant gratification. And Christie complained about the youths a lot in the 60s, but with Endless Night, I think she actually got it right. And I think she actually made some really, really interesting points and made me think about, you know, just those dynamics in a way that I hadn't before. That, you know, that's just two examples off the top of my head. She's, She's doing it all the time.
1: But I mean, so to trace it backwards, what I would say is going from Endless Night about the sort of decay of youth possibly if you go back to Peril at End House, which we love, what is that about? It's about the fall of the sort of outlook of youth in the 1920s and written in 1932, right? So the idea that she actually, reading her across time, she's making the same points. She has the same observations, but she's placing them in their proper place. Time and space. And it's fascinating. And that goes all the way back to styles to circle fully back around. Because what is she talking about in styles? She's talking about a Belgian refugee and people who are sort of in this village. And it is completely set in a very specific socio cultural space. And I think that when you see it up front like this, it's gripping. I find it gripping.
0: Agreed. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I would say we rejected then the dichotomy of escapism versus engagement when it comes to detective fiction. We have an ongoing joke basically on this podcast that there is a dichotomy as to Catherine being the Poirotian and uh, myself being the Marpleite. though in reality, we both love both detectives. But listening to the Styles episode, I had actually forgotten this, uh, but Catherine and I talk about it in this very first episode. Um, Catherine's introduction to Christy was sitting on her mother's lap watching the Suchet series. So it was watching a TV series. My introduction to Christy was very much reading, you know, old paperbacks when I was about 9 or 10 I think is when I really started engaging with them in in 3rd or 4th grade and I think it's really interesting that we came to it in such different ways and I just think it speaks to the fact that there is more than one way to engage with Christie and Christie specifically, because engaging with Christie through those adaptations is a robust avenue, as evidenced by Catherine's full her, her love of Christie being in full flowering right now.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah, we will not get into the Poirot Marble Divide. Um, <laughs> we are both have all their merits, and you know sometimes. Perhaps some of you in this very audience accuse me of n- n- disliking Miss Marple largely because of my dark Marple theory. But the reality is, you know, we love both. that's that's the reality. But Kemper's right. I mean, I think that when you come from something which a lot of people do, which is through, in particular, the Suchet series, you're going to have a little bit of a preference there, I think. You know it's a, it's hard not to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Suchet series, it was so it was it was so brilliantly done but also so completist, not totally but almost so that I think it's it's easy to engage uh with Christy through just solely Suchet. Miss Marple is a little bit more scattershot, I guess you could say, when it comes to the adaptations, even though, of course, Joan Hickson tends to be the authority. But yes, I think that's fair. You know, it's also really funny, Catherine. I don't know if you caught this at the end of our first episode, but we, of course, say what we're going to cover next. And and I believe I said, okay, well, our Our next episode is going to be a Tommy and Tuppence novel. It's The Secret Adversary, the the first Tommy and Tuppence. And you threw some shade at Tommy and Tuppence. And I believe I said, well, I actually like Tommy and Tuppence. And you said you would. And I just think it's funny because, wow, we have a lot of affection for those two after having engaged with the text as much as we did.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely so. And I think that uh, we... We would rank Tommy and Toppins pretty high. We even like, I mean, we love NRM. You know, we do rankings for these episodes. And I always have the joke that I think NRM is ranked too low. So,
0: you know, well, funny that you should bring up rankings because I think we're going to close out our talk before we hand it over to all of you for questions. And we do hope that you have questions because we would love to hear from you. But we should talk about the ranking of the mysterious affair at styles because we have to right some wrongs here, people. Uh, We were way too harsh. as as we already said, uh, when we ranked this book or even when we discussed the book and we were doing it in a vacuum. It was the first time. We had nothing to compare it to. So real quick, our rundown of how we ranked Mysterious Everett Styles on that episode is as follows. Uh, We gave plot mechanics an eight, plot credibility a four, series-long characters an eight, book-specific characters a two, setting and tone a four, and stuck in its time, we took off five points for the mysterious affair at styles, which is madness. And listening back to the episode, I can tell that we were judging mysterious affair at styles. We were, we were kind of using it as a substitute for our overall sense of the opera at that point. Um, and I think that's why we were so harsh on styles. Um, so, that put the Mysterious Everett Styles at 21 points. That was its initial score. Right now, that would mean it would be tied with why didn't they ask Evans and sitting in the bottom 10 of our titles, which is just not okay. We have goosted up since then as we do our state of the rankings episodes every year. Currently it has 25 points. It's sitting about two-thirds of the way down the rankings, but We're just going to, we're not going to, you know, go through the conversation we normally do of the back and forth because we don't have that time. So we did this ahead of time. Um, Here are the new rankings for the Mysterious Affaired Styles. Catherine, would you like to do the honors?
1: Oh, okay. I think we're going plot mechanics seven, plot credibility six, series long characters eight, book specific characters five, setting and tone six, and only two for stuck in its time, which brings us to 30 which ties us with sparkling cyanide and they do it with mirrors and we think that it goes above those so we would rank it currently at 30 which you know i think is right there's like a big section that we kind of like place in the middle um that are all totally good books they're just she has some superlative books as it turns out, you know, I think you guys might know that. So yeah, I think it's a much better place for it. And we really have been deeply appreciative of having the opportunity to read it again and like be forced to change our opinion.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think middle of the pack is, is about where it belongs. I agree. It's not superlative. It has some flaws, but um it deserves certainly to be to be in the middle it's her first book i mean there and you you can't overstate how it important it is it sets up
1: everything that she does so so well in so many books that will come after
0: absolutely so now that we have righted that wrong and given the mysterious affair at styles the justice it deserves uh, we'd love to open up the discussion hear what questions or comments you all might have for us about styles, any other Christie titles, about podcasting, anything really. So please ask away. Okay, so have we got some questions uh, in front? Uh, what is your top-ranked book? What is your top-ranked book? Uh,
1: I'm going to take this one. <laughs> it's Five Little Pigs. And um, there's, to me, there's no question... There, I mean, we have it actually, uh, from a ranking perspective, we have it tied with, and then there were none. We ranked it above, and then there were none, largely because it is a Poirot. So it's not entirely separated um, from I think a lot of the rest of the canon because obviously, and then there were none as a standalone. But yeah, we it's, it's Fat Little Pigs. I had to sell, funny story actually. I had to sell Kemper on this because several years ago we were at a conference at Cambridge and we were doing a topic and I said, well, we should do it about justice um, in Five Little Pigs. And Kemper said to me, well, I don't really like Five Little Pigs. And I was like, you are wrong. And he was forced to reread it. Um, and he was like, oh yeah, I was wrong.
0: (laughs) Well, five little pigs is it's, it's a bit of an anomaly, I think within the canon, because it's about something very specific. You know, the American title was murder in retrospect. It really is in some ways it's about rereading. It's about retelling and revisiting. And, and that is what happens in the book. And the book is very repetitive. So I think that, but that's the point. So I think that some people don't find it as zippy, and entertaining as many of their favorite Christie's. And I think that they are absolutely correct in that assessment of the book. But I think when you really do a closer read of the book, what she's saying and the way she's saying it and the quality of the writing in specific, I think in a lot of ways, I actually think that, and then there were none, Truly does tie in terms of uh, Christie's best written book, just the the quality of the writing. I think, and then there were none is just brilliant, um, but so is Five Little Pigs, and they're so different. That you know, there's this stark nihilism to, and then there were none, and Five Little Pigs is this rich kind of just this richly textured and layered book that just has um so much going on there the 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 deeper you dig the more you get and um it's they're they're great sort of i think comparison side by side i'm very happy that we have them uh, as our top 2
1: and i i mean i would also say that you know that final section the final chapter especially the end of five little pigs is the best thing that she ever wrote in my opinion personally i think it is just so Jarring and devastating to devastating. read. Devastating. And so, like, I always point people to that when they want to criticize, for example, Christie's writing, because I'm sorry, show me any high literary novel, quote unquote, that you put in some other category, and I will show you Five Little Pigs. Well, what I
0: particularly like about Five Little Pigs, of course, there's a very important plot element. Which is exactly the same as it is in the mysterious Baron Styles visiting a visiting a dispensary, which is <laughs> awesome. All right, We have a question over here. That mm-hmm.
1: Very interesting podcast. Um, I'd like to hear a little more about why Kemper prefers marble and why Catherine prefers Florida. Okay. and in particular, I was confused by Catherine's dark
0: marble okay. theory. <laughs> so, a very interesting podcast, as said. But you would like to hear a little bit more, Kemper. About your preference for Miss Marple and from you, Catherine, your preference for Poirot, but also what you meant by dark marble. So- Ooh. Well, you've, you've opened up a can of worms there. <laughs> a can of very, very, very creepy, murderous worms. Um, I'll, I'll go real quick. I prefer Miss Marple because. A lot of my favorite books uh, happen to be Marple books. And it's interesting, you know, we ask when we interview authors or other Christie scholars, we always ask at the end, Poirot or Marple, basically like gun to head, Poirot or Marple. Some of them refuse to answer, which is fair. Um, But a lot of them answer Poirot and have a good reason for it, which is that a lot of her books with the Gonzo concepts, where you're just like, oh, my God, how did she pull that off? You know, Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Murder on the Orient Express are Poirot books. A lot of her best books really are Poirot books, especially when it comes to the plotting and the the puzzle mystery construction. I find, though, that a lot of a lot of the books that I have the most affection for are Marple and specifically uh, The Murder at the Vicarage. I just adore The narrative voice of the vicar, I think, is one of her best. Um, You know, she was so good at...
1: Never forget Griselda.
0: And never forget Griselda or Leonard. I mean, she's so good at impersonating, actually, a a male narrator, a charming male narrator. Obviously, she did it a number of times with Hastings. And I think she's never better than in that book, Um, And I also love the Miss Marple short stories as well. And I think Miss Marple really does shine in that form in a way that Poirot really doesn't. I think the Miss Marple short stories are much stronger and more enjoyable than Poirot. And it probably also has something to do with the Joan Hickson series also. I mean, I really think that, uh, Joan Hickson just inhabited that character, and even though that series is not perfect and it feels a little old-fashioned and sometimes even cheaply produced based on what we're used to in 2021, the sort of lavish productions, um, sometimes that series can feel a little flat re-watching it, which has been interesting as we've um, been doing this podcast, because we do also watch all of the English language adaptations of everything we cover, believe it or not. Uh, I, I do have a lot of affection for the Hickson series.
1: I obviously do too. And also, by the way, there is a Japanese anime Miss Marple series and Poirot, which we um, have covered, which if you have not found it, it is findable online and it is very faithful to the books and it is extraordinarily charming. I mean, there is a talking duck. I will say that much. So be forewarned. But, um, even the duck is kind of cute. And it's, um, it's like, honestly, for any Christie lovers, especially like on in the marble versions, it's, it's just wonderful. Uh, The dark marble joke that we have is that I have this sort of, it's a little bit, um, like the Jessica Fletcher joke that she killed them all. And, We started it as a joke in large part because if you actually look at Miss Marple versus Poirot, Poirot generally has this sort of, like, he'll make, like, love matches. There's the Papa Poirot element, right? And it's not that Miss Marple doesn't have that to some extent, but it's that she's really vengeful. And it's actually mentioned a few times that she just actually, like, I mean, she's deliberate. She hates murder and hypocrisy and all of these things. And she goes way out of her way. So she's not a fluffy character whatsoever. And so we just started it as a joke, the Dark Marple thing. Because, again, a way to combat the cozy idea of a cozy. Because what Ms. Marple's doing is not, it's extra legal justice. So, you know, we started it as a joke and then it's just now like something that we <laughs> it's in our personal canon. How about that?
0: But it is really backed up by the text, I mean, I think that's why is... and and people love it because I think it's if you read Christie, you you know exactly what we're talking about. You know, yes, she's a she's a very Christian woman. She's a very conventional woman in some ways, but those books, her power is built on cynicism. Mm -hmm. She believes the worst in people and she's usually right. And she's lived her whole life and she knows what's going on and no one is pulling the wool over her eyes. And we, we just get that sense that, Behind this fluffy facade is, you know, a fury. And yeah, and Christie like literally compares her to Nemesis. I mean, you know, really the the final Marple book. I know Sleeping Murder. Yes, technically is the final published, but Nemesis, which we haven't covered yet, I'm very excited to cover it, is where Miss Marple almost gets harder in that way, character-wise, as her body is aging and, and falling apart in those later novels. And um, it's just, I think it's a fun way to think it's, of Miss Marple.
1: It's, it, I think it's a way to break through and explain that it's a little bit of a ruse, right? Because Miss Marple, as a woman, does not have necessarily, and especially as an unmarried elderly woman, right? She doesn't have necessarily this goes back to the agency topic right so she operates from this person who you know goes to the butcher shop and she listens to everybody and she knits for people and she gardens and you know she talks about gardening with Dolly Bantry etc and love Dolly Bantry personal favorite um but behind that She's listening all of the time. That's how she's solving the crimes. Is because that entire time, she was listening, and that makes her dangerous.
0: Yeah, and laying traps. She's mm-hmm. constant. She's constantly laying traps, and um, it is remarkable uh, as you read these books. I mean, Miss Marple often solves these um, mysteries just in her own head and she has zero evidence at the end. And that's not really how, how a lot of the barrows go, even though yes, he's an armchair detective. He actually, especially in the early books really does get out there. And he often is involved enough that there is physical evidence by the time he's doing his denouement. Miss Marple, not so much. And that's why she really does have to spring traps because often, unless she caught the murderer at the end within this trap red-handed as they're trying to kill a, you know, a, a final victim, for example, that happens in a lot of them. Uh, it would just sort of be like, okay, well, I guess so. Say you, you know, um, and that's she's a, why she she's has a, to do well, that. she's
1: a vigilante. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, like for all intents and purposes, she's a vigilante, and you know, that's where the joke comes from. And to be honest, that's also why I appreciate her. <laughs> hey, next question, uh, gentlemen,
0: uh, San Diego has made it out here, so we're, we're a little sad. LA didn't make it. Uh, <laughs> we, I, I think we're the better city, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> my, my question is: if Emma Christie was a man, and she had this kind of success, what do you think the critics would have been saying about him instead of about her?
1: Well, okay, so there's an obvious thing here because, again, not to have to bring up. Edmund Wilson, again, who I do not have a lot of nice things to say about. But he was the most important literary critic in America for, like, 20 years. And in this entire peak time, so both before and after the war. And he did write a book called Boys in the Back Room, which was about hard-boiled, so, like, pulp fiction, like Raymond Chandler and noir, Dashiell Hammett. He wrote that book, which was critical about noir and pulp fiction but he was much much nicer about it than in two other very important essays that he wrote that were called who cares who murdered roger Aykroyd? and why do people read detective fiction and i would give you one guess as to who he was writing about in those two essays and they would be women So yeah, he was much, much, much kinder in Boys in the Backroom than he was towards the female novelist. I mean, and so that's the United States take here. I think it's a little bit probably different in Britain because Christie herself had quite a number of like very high profile literary men who loved her work. So I don't, I think it's a little bit different there, but I think that in answer to my answer to that question would be just looking in that perspective that clearly there's a bit of misogyny at play.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm dumbfounded constantly at, I think, um, how much people are willing to forgive the, the genre tics of noir and treat it as, you know, "Quote unquote high literature" or something that deserves critical analysis, which they just don't accord to uh, detective fiction. And I think I, I, I think part of that is the fact that there's a gendered thing going on there, where noir is very much in the male uh, a male tradition, and detective fiction is at least mixed. You know, there are plenty of men who write detective detective fiction as well, but also a lot of women. So I. I think she would have had an easier time, right? If, of if well, it, at least over here.
1: <laughs> I'd also say though that noir gets a benefit because the French literary establishment decided that American noir was hugely important and influential. So it got like the imprimatur of high art versus I think that and that's why we dismiss the term cozy, because I think it's incredibly gendered and dismissive. Okay, um several
0: more questions. Back in the second right here. Back to the rankings.
1: Which books do you see at the bottom?
0: Which books do so you see? And how many at the times do you read it? And how many times have you read the, the your bottom-ranked books? Uh, uh, ranked- oh. All right. Well, I actually have our our grid up here, since I am in front of my computer, after all. So I will read off our bottom 10 books in descending order. Uh, We've got The Mystery of the Blue Train, The Clocks, Why Didn't They Ask Evans, The Seven Dials Mystery, Destination Unknown, Death Comes as the End, They Came to Baghdad, Hickory Dickory Dock, The Big Four, and The Secret of Chimneys. And just as we have a tie in terms of our scoring for our top two books, we actually have a tie for our bottom three. So Hickory Dickory Dock, The Big Four, and The Secret of Chimneys all have the least points out of anything we've covered for different reasons, I think, all three of those. But I stand by all three of those being uh, at the bottom.
1: I will only say that Kemper and I have a running joke between the two of us that probably secret of chimneys is ranked too low because we both read it in an extraordinarily bad mood. <laughs> and It just, it probably skewed it, but also neither of us has been interested in revisiting that. So that's probably why it's, my guess is that it is lower than it should be, but We're probably not coming back to that immediately. And the Big Four, I know that the Big Four has its defenders. The Big Four is just bewildering in a lot of ways, I think. And there are biographical reasons for that. So I think that you can excuse it. I don't think it's necessarily any judgment on Christie because it was written at a not very good time. So I think that's important to consider.
0: Yeah. And then I, you know, and I think Hickory Dickory Dock was Christy trying to do something with the best of intentions. You know, it's this multicultural setting in a hostel. It's all these young graduate students from different cultures and backgrounds. It just, you know, doesn't, doesn't come off, especially when, when being read now. It didn't feel quite authentic. Let's just put it that way. But the
1: intention- yeah, I mean- the intentions Sorry, there were probably good.
0: Very good, very good. I mean and that's also kind of the fun of Christie and it's why we we set out to do this at all. When you write 66 novels, um some are going to be better than others. And I think Christie really does have a wide range and it's really we're always doing it in the spirit of fun and engagement because if you love Christie, I think it's just as fascinating to figure out why some of the books don't work. As well as others, as it is to laud the ones that work um, and figure out why that is. So it's just it's it's all part of the fun. So does anyone want to, uh, to challenge those? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think i not want to challenge those ones directly, but do you think
1: there'll be a point where you will revisit some of them? And maybe when you finish them all, you have like a list of polls to go back and close the ones that perhaps
0: they think that you. Production? will will you revisit them and will you have a listener poll to identify the ones that your listeners would like you to revisit
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, possibly i mean we um you know as i said before i think we have this constant ongoing conversation about what we sort of think are between the two of us are ranked too low i always say that i think Murder is easy is ranked too low. And I think NRM is ranked too low. And I know that other people agree in both of those cases.
0: I kind of like that idea. I mean, I think, you know, we only have, I, I believe it's, it's eight books. We only have eight books left and that makes us very sad. And I think <laughs> quite honestly, we're, lo- we're looking to extend the length <laughs> of this podcast as long as possible right now. So um, I love the idea of asking listeners to identify which titles they think deserve a second look or a second shot. We're not going to do that with all of them, but I would, I would be open to that actually. Because honestly, having, having reread styles again, it was really illuminating and, and I actually really enjoyed it too. So I, I'm game. Wait,
1: I want to know, Tony, can you please ask the uh, lady who asked the question what she wants us to evaluate? <laughs> okay.
0: She's thinking.
1: Uh, I read that comes
0: at the end with the podcast,
1: but I never read it, so I thought like, oh, it was an opportune moment. And I really enjoyed it. I thought there was a really high debt count. I thought it was a <laughs> good writing. in the I was able to work it out. I got the clue
0: of, like, where she was looking. I was really proud of myself. <laughs> I never came in, it was the brag, Ooh, right near the bottom. And I just thought, maybe one day we can go back. this. Um, okay, so death comes as the end. Well, so,
1: that's... Uh, Death Comes at the End, though, has, like, one of the great clues in it. That is the biggest merit to Death Comes at the End, is that it has one of the great clues in it.
0: We were really hard on death comes as the end, you know, uh, uh, Sophie, Hannah agrees with you faceless person in the crowd, who, we are, who we're hearing, but I, there are many who, who think that we were much, much too hard on that one. That's one of the ones where Catherine and I lined up though. We both really did not enjoy that one as we were reading it. I was surprised by that because I definitely had read it when I was younger and, did not remember disliking it as much as I did when I read. So maybe that one is where, maybe it's a secret of chimneys situation. Maybe we were both just in bad moods when we read that one too. I don't know. But um, I will say while we were reading Death Comes as the End, there was this adaptation that was in the works for it. But apparently that has fallen apart and that's not happening. And I'm, I'm sad about that because it's one of very few of Christie's novels that has never been adapted. It's an opportunity for... An entire cast that's people of color, which I think is really interesting. And I certainly would be all about watching an adaptation of Death Comes as the End. So I really hope that maybe that comes together again and um, we're able to get some sort of a big, splashy, Cleopatra-esque film version of Death Comes as oh, the No,
1: end. you just said, you basically, Kemper, you just I just said, cursed it. You cursed I cursed it.
0: it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, yep. I know. So you look forward to a version, a cinematic version, Death counts as the end. As long as the adapter doesn't set it in the village, they to
1: 2021 or something. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, gentlemen in the blue shirt. What is the range of scores from
0: bottom three to top? What's the range of scores from the bottom to the top? What's your lowest score? What's your highest score? Well, the um the highest possible score is a fifty because we basically have we have these five categories which are plot mechanics, plot credibility, uh, series long characters, which is the detective or sidekicks or you know other people in the world, Jap, what have you, Ariadne Oliver, then one off characters, so characters who appear only in that book, and setting and tone, which is kind of our catch all category for both. Evocation of setting, but also writing (laughs) style and just writing quality overall so a perfect score would be tens in all of those categories and then no deductions for uh stuck in its time and that's kind of just you know we couldn't ignore the experience of reading christy and the jarring effect sometimes of some of the opinions that are quite often held by characters not by the narrator so we're always also you know um giving christy the benefit of the doubt there but it's just something that we can't ignore so um the range is that uh, Five Little Pigs and, and, and Then There Were None have 43 points out of 50. And then the our bottom three have 16 points out of 50. Hickory Dickory Dock, The Big Four, and The Secret of Chimneys. And we've got a lot of ties in between, which is nice because then that just allows us to use our own vague sense of what we think is better. We know that, of course, this is you know applying objectivity to an inherently subjective exercise like reading and thinking about about a book and describing how much you like it like that is a flawed exercise but it's just one that allows us to discuss the books with specificity and compare and contrast them in a systematic way and you know it's it's supposed to be fun more than anything else okay are you happy to carry on for just a few more questions yes please Maybe the front and then later. Uh, hi, um, what, are gonna and <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do when you run out of books? Because we love the podcast and it'll be my time to expire. What are you going to do when you run out of books? Good question. question. Right. Thank
1: you for giving us an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we have a number of um, one guests coming up. And so that's certainly going to be part of it. And, um, I think that the earlier questioners, uh, suggestion that maybe we ask our listeners what they'd like us to reread is good. And if you guys want, um, anybody else on the podcast, certainly we can try to arrange that. And I think it's always interesting to have additional opinions outside of me and Kemper and have it be in conversation, So that's part of what we're going to do. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're a regular listener, we're probably going to spread out the novels a little bit more for the next year. So that's probably going to be part of it and have special episodes um, in addition. Obviously, we'll have an episode when when Death on the Nile comes out obviously, just like we did with Murder on the Orange Express. So like, you know, there's like a lot of possibilities here that we can use before we run out of, we before we run out of runway, as it were.
0: I'll also take this opportunity to shamelessly plug our Patreon site, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, it's a subscription site. So it's a, it's a paid subscription of $5 a month, but we do a lot of Christie content that is just a little bit more um, random. Quite honestly, we we've even covered a couple of short stories that just don't really fit into what we generally do on the podcast. And we covered Mary
1: Westmacott,
0: we cover we've covered two of the six Mary Westmacotts there, um, and we also cover some non-Christie material that falls within the mystery genre. We oh. recently just did yeah. Rebecca.
1: Oh, if you want a real deep dive on Rebecca, let me tell you, we have about five hours of content and
0: four adaptations of Rebecca as well. Oh yes, we watched Rebecca four times in a row within the space of like forty eight hours, which
1: do, uh, do do not recommend. It's Don't shocking
0: it. that we're here uh, over upright doing do this not right recommend. now, <laughs> but um, but that's an opportunity which, and we'll continue, I think, doing the Patreon that, that that's monthly, so it's a little bit easier to sustain that, and I think. I mean, I I fully intend, you know, even in our, into our 70s and 80s, if some sort of like Agatha Christie thing comes out, be it either an adaptation or a new novel or something like that, you know, that we can always add an episode, it just might become a little bit of a less regular thing.
1: Well, and also like, camp. I mean, obviously, like we also know, you know, there was the announcement the other week about the uh, Miss Marple collection of short stories which we are very excited about yeah. so um you know there's plenty on the horizon still i i keep saying to kemper that like it really is like an existential crisis because i keep getting like twitter messages that are something to the effect of oh it's almost over and i just am like please don't please don't do that to me
0: <laughs> Okay, uh, so we have got one more question there. So one at the back as well? Yep, one at the back. So lady here first and the gentleman at the back. Okay,
1: I'm my myself and instead I'll ask, do you now warn your guests that if they suggest that Christy is cosy, you will really eat them alive and take them prisoners? Christmas?
0: Oh. Okay. Right. Do <laughs> you warn your guests that if they refer to Christy as cosy, you will eat them alive?
1: <laughs> oh, I think we have.
0: <laughs> if they've listened to past episodes, they are notice we had we had an, a thriller writer on recently who did casually use cozy and, and Catherine just, you know, immediately. Well, you were very I, I, I think I, you were actually very polite. But you said we take offense to that term. And then she said, oh, why? Because she didn't even she had no context for it. Um, It was it was Alexander Andrews, who wrote a fantastic thriller, um, who was Ma Dixon. And then we had a nice conversation about that. So, yeah, we'll continue to to fight that fight. (laughs) (laughs) So before we take the last question, just to plug the next year's festival, Um, Catherine's already mentioned the the Miss Marvel collection, untitled at the moment, um, just to say that three, at least three of the authors uh, involved in that election are a very good festival next year. That's Kate Moss, Any Griffiths, and Barton. Uh, so, last question at the back. Yes, uh, can you hear me? I can hear you just okay. Um, having told us the top two being private things, um, what else is it in the top ten? Ah, uh, okay. So you told us the top two. Can you just tell us the top ten? I certainly can. I I'm, I'm, have my grid in front of me here. I'll, I will read them out. We've got Five Little Pigs, and then there were none. The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Endless Night, Crooked House, A Murder is Announced, Murder on the Orient Express, The Hollow, Death on the Nile, and in tenth Place, The Pale Horse. And I will just note... That two of those books in the top ten were written in the sixties, "The Pale Horse" and "Endless Night." So th- this idea that Christie just you know wrote her best stuff in the thirties and maybe the forties and then just petered out is just really not true. And I've I've really been struck by that as well as we've been reading that it just it kind of seesaws back and forth. And I think that um, she wrote a lot of really interesting stuff right up until the very end.
1: Um. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I said that. I think that there's some we're, we're going to have a little bit of a reconsider, possibly. I think that both of us have some feelings that maybe Murder at the Vicarage and Peril at End House should be in the top 10. So, I mean, that's a longer conversation. But, you know, it's it's very, very close at the top.
0: Those are at 11 and 12. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's so hard with Christy. I mean, I think anything within the top 20 of 66 books is superb. So it's it gets really difficult. But, you know, we we brought this on ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I wonder, my, my
1: final question to you is, are you planning a book at any time? Well, you know... We did have to prepare for this festival, Tony. But um, yeah, we might have been in the process of something. Ah, right. Well, that's something to look forward to. And it only remains for me to say thank you very much, and for us all. I you know you can't
0: see us, but hopefully you can hear us. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure.
1: Absolute pleasure. I we're so sad that we can't be there in person to see you, but thank you all for coming. And I hope that the rest of you are enjoying Torky so we can like live vicariously through you. And please reach out to us in email or social media to tell us about how great your experience was. And Tony, of course, as always, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Bye. All right.